Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. SavvyCal is a new scheduling tool that removes the awkward scheduling dance of finding a time to meet. Looking back at the times when we used to exchange 10 emails just to find a time to meet feels like the dark ages, but we still have a long way to go. Most of the other scheduling tools of today put the burden on the recipient, which can be even more inconvenient than trading emails in the first place. Using a scheduling tool should be just as easy for the recipient as it is for you, the sender. And that's SavvyCal. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM and also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Kieran Flanagan. Kieran is the SVP of marketing at HubSpot, where he's building a new media initiative within the company. I wanted to bring him on because Kieran was at the forefront of putting together the acquisition of The Hustle by HubSpot. They also just launched a podcast network and are heavily invested into YouTube right now. And Kieran is one of the smartest marketers and especially marketing leaders I know. So it's fun to watch them innovate at HubSpot and just get a peek into what they're working on. So in our conversation, we'll hear about how they spent tens of millions of dollars acquiring a media company, his go-to playbook for expanding internationally, and how their marketing has evolved as the product evolved from just a marketing automation tool to a full suite CRM for marketing, sales, support, and operations. To start out, I love asking, did you ever think that you'd be doing marketing for a living? No, I didn't. I never even really knew what marketing was. So I uh, did computer science at university and mm. uh, thought of myself as I kind of categorize people I've started doing this recently. It really helps me to categorize uh, when I'm trying to build teams into operators, creatives, and and builders. And so mm. I kind of thought I was going to be a builder, but I was going to be like a builder of products or like a builder of cool things. And that's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to, to build things. The challenge I came into is, first of all, the IT has a lot of different roles you can get into, and some of them are just very boring. And, uh, and I also wasn't very good at it, which kind of is, you know, a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of if you're not very good at it, you get the more boring rules. And so, yeah. and so, yeah, I was in, I was in that for a while. And I, and like most people actually that I know in marketing got into marketing accidentally. Hmm. I want to get to you sort of your background and, and how you got into it accidentally a little bit, but could you expand on the operators versus creatives versus builders? Like just expand on those and how you came to that framework of how to think about different types of talent? Yeah, I, so in, in any kind of company, in any kind of team, you have these people who are op operators, creatives, or operators, and you can be all, you can do elements of all three, but you usually excel in one. And actually people who become leaders within spaces, like when you reach the kind of VP, CMO, SVP, all these kind of titles, whatever, just like leading large teams, you usually excel in one of those, but you have to do all of those. And it helps to know where you where your strengths lie. I like to know where my strengths lie so I know where my weaknesses are. And so builders are people who can kind of build things. Like I can take something and I can grow an audience. So they happen to be the usually kind of the growth-minded folks who can build an audience and a platform who could figure out how to just get mass amounts of audience for these different products and services. Operators are the people who are really important to keep things going. Like they're really good at operating models, processes, alignment. Like how do you actually I create frameworks for all of this to work? And then creatives are the people who are really good at positioning things, um, creatively coming up with ideas that people actually become emotionally connected to. And I think that in all companies, you have people who straddle those three, but people excel in one of those and kind of are good or okay at the others. And I think it's good to think about your team as you build it out. You know, mm. what is your mix between operators, creatives, and builders? Which one of those do you feel like you excel at personally? I'm a builder. Uh, I'm a builder. I'm a, I'm a builder. I'm good at ideas and creativity. I don't think I, I, I excel at that. I think you need to actually make that your thing if you want to excel at it. And I, I'm a pretty good operator. Like I have a group of 170 people, but I know people on my team that I manage that are better operators than me. Like they just have better processes, better alignment, better decks, better coordination of teams, better practices. And so I generally gravitate towards being a builder. And I think at some point I would like to probably spend a lot of time on improving my uh, creative outlet when I, when I ever mm -hmm. go on to do something new. 
Yeah, yeah. So how did you end up in marketing accidentally? And I'm also wondering if that's sort of something that lend itself to being more of a, a builder type persona. Yeah, so I, I, even when, if you think, of, I, I think about this because when I was in college, uh, I tried to launch a company was when I was in my placement year. And and so I've always wanted to be a builder. I just thought I would be in the different a different part of being a builder. I thought I would be in the part of actually being the, the building the thing and giving it to someone else to figure out how to get people to use it. When I was in I in computer science, when I started to be when I come left computer science, university, I became a software engineer, and I was kind of building things. They were really boring things, and I went to live in Sydney for a year, and someone kind of got a role in this one of the biggest radio stations in Australia, and they were launching an e-com store, and I was kind of doing the software engineer at that time. It was really just QA in it, trying to fix bugs, like all of that kind of stuff. And we were in a meeting once and they were spending, I think upwards of 50 to $60 million on this huge project. And I was like, wow, like how, how do people, how do you find people to use this? Like, how do people hear about it? And they were like, oh, I'm not sure about that. Actually, we're going to just build it. And then we, I think people are going to love it and they're going to come. And I thought that was a good answer. Cause I was, you know, I, I my background was in, in software engineering. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good. Like build something really awesome and, and people will discover it and use it. And I think within six months it got shut down because it was such a, a flaming mess <laughs> that no one used. Wow. And 50 million down I, the drain. Yeah. I, they like no one, they couldn't, they just couldn't figure out how to get people to use it. And there was, there was a cost to keep it going because there was a team behind it. And I just became fascinated by like how you would have got people to use this thing. And I got back from Sydney and then got into search and I thought search was actually more of an, of a, development thing than a marketing thing and that's how i ended up in search first and then kind of went from there is that how you got the twitter handle search brat yeah and i this is a good <laughs> uh, you know a good tip think long term and think about the things that you brand yourself with because i would not have chose a search brat if i thought twitter was going to be something that was going to be important to me Right, right. Yeah, one of the early, early Twitter users. Uh, every time I join like a new social network or platform, like now I just, I don't know if you've seen Polywork, but it's sort of like this interesting new like work, creative yeah. focused LinkedIn-ish type thing. And I always try to go for, you know, at Corey, at Corey Haynes, you know, at CH sometimes also. But I remember a long time ago, you know, in my sort of forum days, my early internet days, having all these really creative or kind of crazy, you know, gamer tags and stuff like that. Yeah. And I regret them all. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually took that name because I launched like a mini, like a SEO consultancy. So I, I was working in an agency and then in my uh, off time, I was working in this, my, which was kind of weird, right? That I, I was allowed to do it, but I had my own like mm. consultancy doing search and I thought search brat would be a cool brand name. And then I, I realized my own name would have just been easier. Right, right. So today, the SVP of marketing at HubSpot, like you said, you manage over 100 people and sort of huge team organization. HubSpot is a publicly traded company. I believe you guys just passed the 1 billion ARR milestone, which is insane, like absolutely mind boggling. But I'm wondering, how did you get to where you are today? Like, can you walk me through kind of the brief, you know, 30,000 foot view uh, timeline of how you got to where you are? Yeah, I so all all the roles up until the one I, I'm in or just in HubSpot? Pretty much all of them, yeah. From yeah, search yeah, consultancy yeah. to today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so I, I, w I went into an agency. I ran a, a search team for a really good agency based in Ireland, did great work. Salesforce asked me to go and kind of do a bunch of their digital marketing in Europe. And so I went and did that for 18 months and that was a, a really good experience. I learned a lot about how to work in an in-house environment when I was at Salesforce um, versus working with clients. I enjoyed it a lot more because you could do things, you could get a little bit more deeper, do things that are a little bit more bigger. I uh, wanted to work for a smaller company and so I went to join Marketo when they first opened up their European headquarters in Dublin and that was kind of going to, that was kind of going to be my startup-ish journey and it just so happened eight months into that HubSpot decided that they would also open, open up their European headquarters in Dublin. And so I kind of made a tough choice, even though I'd only been in Marketo for eight months, I really wanted to work for HubSpot. I was obsessed by, by HubSpot way before they had ever decided to come to Europe and come to Dublin when they were much less known. And, uh, and so join HubSpot to lead at the international marketing team 
that was awesome. Joined when there was 19 of us. I think the company was about three, three, 300, 350 people. It's more than 10 times bigger now. And uh, then did that, and then did that for two and a half years. The, the founder said, hey, would you come and join this small team? We want to try to pivot our business to be this product-led company. Can you go and manage the marketing and growth? And I was like, yep, I will definitely do that. Sounds like a cool thing. Did that for two and a half years and then kind of led the uh, customer acquisition group. So HubSpot is somewhat unique in the B2B space because all of the revenue we generate is actually comes from marketing source demand. So marketing are inherently uh, on the hook to acquire demand that results in revenue. Did that for two years. And then I get a, a new mission every two years. And this is the thing people may not understand if you're in a successful company, which is really good. And then today, uh, still lead the marketing acquisition team, building out this new kind of media offering, which is the thing I, I, I'm just passionate about. This HubSpot network, which is really cool. It's the connection between our community, our, our credentials, our, our education. And so in total, the group is about 170 people, spans across a, a lot of different things. But yeah, it's been a wild ride, crazy journey. Yeah, yeah, what a journey, especially being able to be at at HubSpot for so long and doing so many different types of things. I've heard, especially being at sort of a, a scale up or, you know, or basically a company on, on the road to, you know, huge exit or IPO of some sort, you have to grow at the same pace at the company if you want to sort of level up and keep laddering up because the company demands so much and sort of you, it's easily for you to be replaced, you know, above you or ahead of you if you're not also growing at the same pace as the company. Did you, is that something that you were pretty, intentional about or that sort of just, you know, opportunities fell in your lap or just, you know, the things were going so fast that you just needed sort of bodies and hands. Yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good way to think about, that's a really good way to describe careers and scaling companies in that you have to, you're constantly having to up level because the problems are so much harder. And like, there's a couple of problems now that Kip and I, who's the CMO of uh, HubSpot talk about over Slack all the time. There's not actually an example of someone who's done it. So there's not like an existing playbook. When you're in a certain stage, it's really hard. Like it's still, all of those stages are hard going from uh, 10 million to 50 million, 50 to 100, 100 to a billion. But in a lot of those stages, there's there are other companies and are other playbooks. You can kind of go and spend time with those companies and learn about the things that they did and didn't do. When you reach a certain scale, you start to find like, oh, wow, like there's not actually anyone who's tried to do this. There's a, there's a problem that mm. uh, I'm trying to work on and went to try to talk to other people and they were like, and no one's really either figured it out or had to, had to try and attempt it. And so in terms of being intentional about that, I, I really just put myself into, I'm just like deeply passionate about certain things. I try to solve problems and I'm fortunate the problems that I'm being able to solve have been important to the company. Hmm. Yeah. I want to get into the media offering, sort of this new path that you guys are paving. And uh, I love the way you guys think about it. I'm really, really excited to get to that part. But I will, I'd also be remiss. I know a lot of listeners, people are going to be wondering, what the heck does the day in the life of a VP of marketing at a public traded company like HubSpot look like? Just what are the types of things that you do, places you spend your time, you know, different types of tasks that you do, and sort of the way you think about your day and your week? Yeah, I... So I plan for my week on a Sunday. A lot of my week is spent on strategic things. So either cre creating different strategic docs or coming back to my team on strategic docs. There are things that I get into the weeds on. And so when you have a big enough group, you have to pick and choose your battles. And so what I say to anyone that I manage is, hey, like I, I trust you to do your role at you know, I really my entire team is is mostly made up of either senior directors or VPs. So it's not they have autonomy there in any other company's CMOs. And so I tell them that I will get into the weeds and it's no reflection upon you. It's just that this is the project this quarter that I really want to get into the weeds on, get into the minutiae on, figure out the details. And I say that up front so people don't think it's a reflection on them or their role. And so I spend, I get, I spend nine till 12 kind of working on real work. I have no meetings because my, most of my group is actually based in the States. That is very, that is something very unique about my role. I have some people based in Europe, but not that many. And bet between 12 and 7 is when I have the majority of my meetings. Uh, I get to spend a lot of time with my team, try to make sure meetings are actionable. They have agenda, clear output, deliverable, and we're trying to make decisions. The one thing that we do that works really well that is 
practiced by a lot of companies is we do pre-reads. And so you're not trying to explain something in a meeting, you're trying to ship a decision. Mm. And so I, I do that. A lot of time spent on trying to recruit and hiring. A lot of time this year has been spent on trying to onboard the hustle and that great team that we've acquired recently. I train, I built myself. One of the things that I did, which I think was the, one of the few uh, projects that I took on over the pandemic that was not related to work was I built myself a gym and that was nice. the best thing I did. And so I train, I eat, uh, I try to have an hour of TV and then I will kind of get back to doing uh, proper work, not meeting work. Hmm. Wow. I mean, it sounds a little bit like a grind. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of work. It's very demanding. Lots of things kind of juggling. Like, is that pretty consistent day after day or do certain weeks or months look differently depending on the project that you're working on? That's no, that's, that's pretty consistent for me. Sometimes it feels like a grind. Sometimes it feels like a joy. I think tech is like, you know, if you want to get into tech, it is a fast paced competitive area. Like there is so many smart people in here. Companies are trying to solve hard problems. Companies are competing against other companies who have people who are uh, very smart and trying to solve hard problems. You kind of sometimes can't gloss over it. Like there's this, you know, really you can get balance, but I do think that it's also, it takes work. It takes hard work and commitment. Now there's, I, I, I make sure that I spend a lot of time on my weekend off. I make work a little bit on the Sunday, but I actually do take a good portion of my weekend off and make sure I take holidays. HubSpot are actually given all employees. When this is recorded, I'm not sure when it goes out, but by the first week of July, the entire HubSpot, all offices are taken off for a week mm. because it's been such a kind of intense year or more with the pandemic. But it's it can seem like a long day. I think you have to enjoy your job to do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the hustle is one of the big kind of topics and one of the, the great pieces of news and interesting, you know, we've seen a lot of this whole, oh, marketing teams should look and act like a media company. And then like the HubSpot goes and acquires a media company. So can you walk me through the acquisition of the hustle? You know, how'd you make the case to spend the money, the tens of millions of dollars, I would assume for the company? Why sort of the, the, the pre, the pre-work other companies that you looked at to acquire and sort of how it fits into the vision for HubSpot that you guys are building out. Yeah. So we, if you go into, it's actually, if you go into SlideShare and look at historical decks from HubSpot and what a, what a waste SlideShare has become, but you'll <laughs> see, you'll see decks from us 10 years ago talking about marketing and companies should be publishers for their audience. And so it's an extension of what we believe. And so what we focused on over the past decade is really building the educational part of that. And so we have a huge media publishing team. A lot of it, a lot of it is educational content, like content that you want to get better in your career. Well, there's another part of that, which is like, what are the stories that helped me get better at my career? What are the stories from like individual experts, leaders that helped me unlock potential that helped me overcome my problems? Like we were just talking about the fact that it's, at a certain point, it becomes hard. The problems become harder because there's no actual playbook for them. And so how do I hear from people that are trying to solve something similar? And so I think there's this really good marriage of education and inspiration. And so the educational part and the stories part. And so we were, we were sitting back and we were thinking about, well, this was the first decade and it's gone pretty well and it's helped us to a billion dollars in revenue. What does the next 10 years look like? And I think it was that inspiration part like how do we become a storyteller for our audience and when we looked at the skill set we had internally we had people who were amazing at education we hadn't really built the muscle around storytelling and how do we tell these stories from our industry and we started to think about should we build buy or partner that's kind of how we think about things and we would buy if we could find a company that had that skill set that had a founder that we think would be uh, a good person to work with that we were excited to work with and be part of the hustle team. And actually the list of companies that fit that bill were really small, really, really small. Mm -hmm. Probably you could count them on one hand, talk to a couple of them. And then we ended up talking to Sam Parr, who's the founder of the hustle. And within a couple of conversations with Sam, we knew that was the right company for us thought about media. He, he was one of the few people we could talk to and like he would, he would teach us the new things and we were like wow we were just excited to spend time with him now there was someone else i can't 
I can't say the name, but also made us feel that way. And it just didn't work out for whatever reason. But Sam was incredible. And we that, that just got us really fired up about the hustle. And the more we met the team, so then we got to meet his kind of key leadership team. We knew that if we could actually make this work, it would just give us such a differentiator within within the marketplace. Hmm. So what what's the goal at the end of the day? Is it really just to, I know that you said that marketing has to, you know, has to, to drive revenue and be a part of sort of one of the, you know, be accountable to actually hitting goals. And now a media company might fit more of that kind of storytelling, sort of media driven, not educationally based, right? But just sort of uh, these different formats of content. But but why a media company? Like what is what is the goal that it helps you hit in in the in the whole kind of jigsaw puzzle yep. of HubSpot's marketing? Yeah, so if we think about the evolution kind of of marketing in general. So like we, what, HubSpot's been successful because we kind of had this methodology of inbound marketing. Why, why was inbound marketing even that successful? Well, if you look at it, inbound marketing, the popularity of inbound marketing correlated perfectly with the growth of the internet because the, mm-hmm. internet, the internet grew and adoption grew. People became more familiar with going online and trying to solve their own, own problems. So the way we consume content for the most part was when we had a problem, we would go on, consume content and, and that content naturally in our space was like educational and that why that's why inbound marketing worked really really well if you look at content consumption today it actually digital content consumption 4x during covid over the last year like we're consuming more content than ever it's actually just part of our lives like we don't just go and search for content when we have a problem it's literally just part like i'll fill five minutes here with a podcast i'll go and check out this newsletter it's just part of how we consume content so it's kind of uh, it, it's become a lot more diverse across a lot more different mediums, across podcasts, across newsletters, blogs, across video. Mm. And so the first thing is when you take a more, like if we think about inbound marketing versus inbound media, which is the way I think about our future, inbound media gives you a more diverse range of properties to create content on. And you want to become a daily source of content for your audience. And that for us means we need to have the skill sets to be able to do that. The second thing is, or one of the other interesting parts is if you look at the evolution of inbound marketing, during that inbound marketing era, era, kind of content become disassociated, not disassociated, kind of move from traditional educational companies into brands, like brands became much more publishers for their markets and that helped B2B brands fill that gap. Now, Now I can fill the gap, these educational needs, more people coming online, they have these niche educational needs, I can create content for them and fill that gap. What's happening today is actually the entire publishing business model is being um, democratized, right? If education was democratized in inbound uh, marketing, in inbound media, what's happening is the publishing model itself is being, being democratized. Creators, and that means I think in inbound marketing, power shifted from educational co- companies to brands. I think in inbound media, it moved from brands to creators. Like creators have much more of the power. They're able to build real businesses around their content. I think having an inbound media approach allows us to actually work better with creators because we have the infrastructure and the talent to be able to do that. And so for us, what we want to do is the perfect example is the popularity of podcasts started with Serial, the podcast. And then you saw all of these brands try to advertise on Serial. We would much rather be able to have the the talent internally to build the Serial podcast ourselves and have really great contextual advertising that we can own and tell our own story on our own properties. And that's very different from what most other brands do and believe, but I think to kind of become successful, you have to have uh, some beliefs that are that are somewhat on an island and different from everyone else. And to to make sure that I give credit where credit is due, that generally is Kip's or Simo's belief. And I think he has been mm. fundamentally correct in that. Yeah, yeah. Could you walk me through a little bit more your thoughts on sort of the build versus buy versus partner thoughts, or if you have any like concrete example or concrete examples as well to kind of like solidify, you know, the decision, especially for HubSpot to, okay, we're moving towards this inbound media model. We want to sort of be the creators and not just, you know, advertise on creators assets. How do you decide between building it yourself versus going to buy versus partnering in some way and what that might look like? Yep. So build build this opportunity cost. Like if we thought of come back to how we thought about the hustle deal, we kind of did spec at how long it would take us to build this team and to have these skill sets and to have similar prop like to have properties of similar size as the hustle, their newsletter, their podcasts, their trends. And the opportunity cost was, you know, 
we were like three three years best case scenario and so you're kind of saving mm. yourself three years by doing that deal partner if we looked at that and we said well, why don't we just partner why don't we just buy up all of the ad space because that's what someone could say to us well you could just buy up all the ad space we don't we don't want the ads we want the talent talent wants to work for talent us having this talent differentiates us and helps us to create that 10-year vision we're not looking at how do we get ads in the hustle properties to get you to buy something you will definitely see things from hubspot but we're thinking five ten years down the line in terms of hey if you're an amazing person who works in media why would you not want to work with this team like they are just a a great team you're working Mm. in a great company um, and we can help you build your media product which is a whole other thing i could talk about but we want to have creators come work for us and actually invest in their own media products and so why do we buy when you you have to have some very clear reasons that makes it worth buying because buying is not easy there's a lot of work that goes into buying there's a lot of due diligence there's a lot of onboarding there's a lot of building relationships and so certain deals are actually better to build yourself certain deals are better to just partner and then certain deals are better to buy and i think each one should be kind of look through each of those lens to see what makes sense to each company hmm. yeah that, w- that was one of the first things that i was thinking about was just the opportunity cost of how long does it take you to sort of replicate and, that, and then at the end of the day that's sort of lost time because at that point also it's a, it's a moving target because <laughs> you know three down three years down the road then the hustle now is you know maybe twice as big and now right. sort of you're, you're another two or three years uh, behind, right? Just kind of perpetually, given the the growth well, rates, and it takes a lot yeah. to, to to kind of catch up. Look at look at Sam and Sean's podcast. Make uh, my first million. Sam would kill me that I actually did. He said, "I keep telling him, I keep saying it's make my first million. <laughs> I cannot get it out of my head." So anyone irritates him, my first million. They they since they've joined HubSpot and we launched our podcast network, they've tripled their numbers, like tripled mm. their numbers, and so. Like what would they be? What will they be in a year to your time? So, I, I and I I think it's been great for both sides. I think it's given Sam some time to. He's just a world class creator, and it's given him some time to do the thing he loves. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of being able to do the thing he loves, you had mentioned here for a second on you know attracting talent to hey come build media with HubSpot, come do your thing in partnership with HubSpot. What could you expand on that a little bit? Like what does that mean? And what does that look like in practice? Yeah, so we're we're starting to build this out. We will have, I think we're going to have some pretty exciting things launching by the end of the year. But even if we just look at where we are today, we launched the podcast network. That podcast network is made up of some HubSpot podcasts, a couple we're going to launch, and then creators that are part of that network who are well-known podcast creators. And they're starting to see real value in being connected to other creators and having HubSpot work with them as a partner. The other thing we want to do is create an environment internally where anyone on the HubSpot media team, so the media team is about 70 people by the end of the year, can actually pitch and try to launch their own products within the HubSpot umbrella. If you think about HubSpot as in hmm. the media as an umbrella just for creators to be able to launch and grow media products, we want to be able to facilitate that and to have the people who want to do that do it under the kind of safety net of having HubSpot support them and having the kind of ability to work with all of these other creators and also having us to be able to provide you with like a creative studio and all of these other things. And so that I think what, what I think about is that what my job is on, on for my media group is if, if Stripe won, you know, I, I, I know Stripe so, somewhat bigger in, in terms of like what we're trying to do in media and what Stripe has done in their overall business at a hundred billion company. But if you kind of just like conceptualize what they did, they, they won because they built a developer first experience. I would love for, to build an environment where our HubSpot media is like a creator first experience. And that if you're a creator, it's almost p- part of whatever your career should be is doing a three a year stint in HubSpot to actually get real experience, to launch something awesome and to learn from that group. Because there are just some amazing people in that group. Now I, I learn from them each and every day. Does that kind of follow a like a barstool sports approach where you sort of have like this big media company where you can you can cross promote and you can sort of like build up talent you can sort of find the the undiscovered you know phenomenon right and, and then they if they grow big then they sort of grow with you but if, if they don't do anything then you can sort of cut your ties or you know they move on to do their own thing and they can kind of you know branch off to their own and does that look like more like you know w2 employees or does that look like some sort of other creative way to partner and compensate i think they are a good 
a good example to use and we haven't formalized everything, anything yet. We are working on this. I think our HubSpot podcast network was the first iteration of this. And we have, I think eight creators and we're signing contracts before more, but where we want to be in 12 months and where we, where we are to today is going to be leaps different. It's going to be very, very different. Like if you think about how we started the year, we started the year with a world-class media group who very, were very much focused on education. Didn't really have podcasts. We weren't really, didn't really have a newsletter. Didn't really have a lot of stories we were telling or, or were even working and focusing on that. We were really just trying to get to grips with YouTube. And in six months, we have a, a really large podcast network. We have a great newsletter. We have a top 10 business podcast in my first million. YouTube has, we've got so much better at YouTube. So where we're going to be in 12 months time, I think is, is going to be pretty exciting. And that is the thing you get from an acquisition. It can leap you ahead. We mm. talked about three years, like it can really accelerate that growth because you just bring on people who are very talented and you put them with other people who are very talented. And as long as you create the right operator model and don't mess it all up, it should, it should create good things. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of podcasts and the podcast network, you've mentioned a few times, that's a very new initiative. I think you guys sort of publicly announced it maybe like a month ago in like May or June, if I'm not mistaken. And you guys are really pushing on that. You're uh, driving for applications. Could you just walk me through like how that works and how you decided to structure it that way? Yeah, I think so. There's not actually one of the things that our customers, we try to, Everything we try to do comes back to how do we serve our customers? And that's not, I know that sounds like Kool-Aid marketing. That is actually true. It's like, what are the problems our customers have? How can we help solve them from the moment they discover HubSpot to the moment they use our product and then beyond that? We have heard multiple times that people had a certain amount of problems they were trying to solve across all these disciplines. And there was no easy way to go find these things. I think anyone who's done podcasting realizes that podcasting is the hardest thing to grow because it's no inherent platforms that helps people with discoverability. And so yeah. really we wanted to build a podcast network for our customers. And so if you look and go and see how we've built that at the moment, you'll see there's some marketing podcasts. There's a lot of, there's an op, RevOps podcast, there's sales podcasts, there's entrepreneurial podcasts. And so we're trying to build that across the disciplines of what we call as a business builder. So a business builder for us is if you're a startup founder, you're an operator within the company, which means you're a marketer, customer success, sales, engineer, product, like you're, you're an operator within that business or you're a leader within that business, whether you're an exec or a CEO, you're basically mm -hmm. a business builder, right? That's how I think people should think of themselves. Your, your goal is to build that business. You should feel really, really good about that. We want to have a podcast network that helps you to solve the problems you have across all of the different facets of being a, a business builder. And so the way we thought about that was, hey, we can't do that ourselves because that would be a lot of podcasts we would have to launch. Um, and again, opportunity costs. So like, what are some of the best people in each of those different topics and how can we kind of convince them to use this? How could we pitch them on joining this network? They get some cool things like a community manager, they get cross promotion through the other podcast. We promote them through a lot of our content. We actually work with them through our community manager to try to surface things we think they would be interested in. We've connected them with each other, which is actually something I didn't think about before launching the podcast network, but they found really valuable. And I think we'll find more value in that over time. And so again, we're finding our feet, but it has gone better than I kind of imagined. Hmm. And so the thought is not exactly to, uh, this is more like a, a partner kind of play instead of like a, a build or a buy, like you said, where in this case, yes. you're not acquiring a podcast that you can, that's possible, but yep. maybe the incentives aren't as aligned. Like what, how does the partnership actually work for the podcast network? Yeah. So it, yeah, so it's a partnership, it's a partnership. So they get some inbuilt, they get some inbuilt advantages of being part of that podcast network. So we have a community manager. We have other things that they, they get that I'm not sure if I'm allowed to disclose or not. So I don't want to, cause my team kills me. And then, then we work with them. The thing that we really want to do is try to contextualize the story of HubSpot through their podcast. So we take a portion of the ad inventory, not all of it because they want to promote mm. their own products and do other things. And so we help to surface up other podcasts from the network on shows that we think they're in shows where we think that audience would be interested in that podcast. We tell the story of HubSpot on some of those podcasts, and then we try to provide other benefits that creators would find beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. So it's buying up a portion of the ads, 
providing the benefits of cross promotion. And then it's really all these kind of ancillary benefits of connection, resources to HubSpot, you know, integration with other types of content and surfacing in other places. But in that way, sort of they keep their own IP, but now they're sort of have a long-term incentive to work with HubSpot and to, to build a more partnership focused incentive rather than just sort of a transactional relationship through like right. buying an ad, for example. Yeah, it's a very different relationship. And uh, the good thing is, I think the benefit to creators will only grow over time as more and more creators join, kind of join what we're doing. Yeah, the, the, the interesting part about it too is so as a podcaster yourself and as one myself, you, we both know that growing a podcast is, like I said, actually, that's that's the thing I've been saying is like, this is the hardest thing to grow yeah. because really like the discoverability is like absolutely zero. Most people listen to new podcasts because, you know, they either like take a leap with something that they like see or hear online, just sort of like on a whim, sort of just, you know, it was a tweet or it was somewhere that got shared or got recommended by a friend. It's a lot like a book, right? It's just sort of like yeah. on a whim. But the it's a lot harder to get someone to listen to a podcast because they have to go find it in their podcast player. They have to either subscribe or download. Then they have to actually go and have a time to listen to it in a queue of a hundred other podcasts that they listen to. And so growth is not inherently there, but retention is there. So when you're onboarding new podcasts into the network, is the thought that you know it's mainly sort of a this is more of like a frequency uh, frequency play rather than like an impressions exposure play. So I have a graphic somewhere that actually talks about the different mediums. And I agree with what you said, which is podcast is one of the best for engagement, one of the worst for growth. For us, what we want to do is like the, the thing, the thing that would be a win for us is if the creators podcast grow within the network, like they actually feel there's just a ton of benefit from them being part of that network that they get more exposure to a larger audience and that they are, they are happy with that. We just want to reach, yeah, like for us, it's a reach play. Like how many, how many people can we reach on a monthly basis through podcasts? Because it's such a great channel to uh, engage with content. And I think the network gives us some inherent advantages to be able to reach more people than a lot of other companies mm. who are launching single, single podcasts. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I love personally it because I think that the, the incentives are, are really, really smart. And I think you guys are, are two for two on being able to really nail the incentives for both sort of the media play with the hustle and being able to, like, I 100% would have bought in that scenario. There's no way that I would try to go and, you know, build the hustle over again yeah. and try to replicate everything they've done. And for podcasts as well, I don't, I don't know if I would necessarily go and buy a podcast, it's not, you know, never say never, but just the incentives are aligned for more of that long-term relationship and especially to fill that gap for just the content itself. You can partner a lot faster and a lot more than you can go build or buy even. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, and it may change over time. And again, we're we're really in the rapid build out of this. And so we're learning as we go. Like Spotify, what they're doing with podcasts is interesting. If you look at the unit economics, like they are backing into how many of these will subscribe and pay us real money and how much would we have to pay for uh, those subscribers and how much will we get because of the podcast. But it's a it's an interesting space. Like it's, you're, I'm sure you know this, you're in this space. Like it's just changing rapidly the kind of media slash creator space. And so we are just trying to be intelligent about what we build today, but be agile about how we want to build this in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious switching gears a little bit, but you know, I don't know how much of this is directly under your umbrella, but regardless, just from your perspective being in HubSpot, how has the marketing strategy changed and evolved as the product has changed and evolved just from a, you know, marketing automation platform, quote unquote, to a full suite of CRM support sales, you know, in marketing platform in and of itself. It's got bigger, bigger and more complex, like, <laughs> which is why you need really great operators and scaling companies. You need great operators, you know, HubSpot. I, I, I think, the, I think our marketing strategy has changed but the focus of it is still somewhat similar in that we are we've always kind of been education first and whether we're educated educating you through brand stories and brand stories are the things we want you to know we put that into the market we're educating you through the content we create and that's extracting demand from the market or educating you through product stories and that's telling you how a product can solve real problems 
we're kind of telling those three things. We're just telling them on a larger, more complex scale because now we have to tell you how individual hubs can solve your problems, whether that's the CRM, marketing, sales, customer success, and then how the whole suite. And so the difficult thing becomes how do people think of you? Like that's actually the harder part as you scale and you add more products is like, what are, what are what are we synonymous with? I think we were synonymous with inbound marketing when you were a full platform. You know, we are we really want to be the kind of CRM for scaling companies, and you have to try to tell that story, and you have to shift people's mindset or the way people think about you a little bit because they're like, oh, aren't they the inbound marketing company? No, they're they're, they're a CRM platform of choice. That is not mm. easy, right? When you if you think about just in general life, how you think about something is generally how you think about it all the time. It takes a hard it takes it's hard to shift that. And so the crux of how we, like we, we want to tell, you know, inspirational stories through brand and product. We want to educate through the community and the, the, all of the educational content we have. And we want to try to grow large amounts of distribution through all of these different media products. That's kind of how we're going to market. Obviously beneath that, it is much, much more complex. Yeah. Yeah. That is one of the big ones. I mean, for years and years, I thought of HubSpot as, you know, marketing and marketing automation. And then I don't think it was actually, you know, even being in it, knowing people, I know Scott as well. I know you I've been following HubSpot for a long time. And it wasn't truly until one of my good friends, actually, he bought a business and then they were very, it was, it's very, it's a local business and it's very low tech. And so he wanted to sort of bring in more tech and automation. And, and he's like, what's like a, a good CRM. So I was getting some, some options. And to be honest, you know, how so I didn't even make it into that list because I hadn't really truly thought of it that way. And then he was kind of doing some research. He's like, Hey, what do you, what do you think about HubSpot? And I was like, Oh my gosh, HubSpot is a CRM. Like yeah. that is actually like the big core part of the product. <laughs> and now he's a happy user and customer and awesome. tells me all the time about all these things that he's doing. But you're right that there's such a huge switch. Do you think that there's a strategy to, to successfully kind of repositioning yourself to think of, you know, how people think of you differently or evolve the way that they think about you? Or is it something that you just have to kind of chip away at and just happens as you kind of, you know, pound it in over time? I think that's a really good question. Um, trying to distill it down into something that is not, that's easy to describe in this format. Like there's parts of it, right? There's repetition. And so one of the hard things about being a multi-product company is, well, how do I promote all of the different products they have, but then get you to think about us in one way. And mm. so then you have to make tough choices, which is, well, we should only talk about us being a CRM company and all these channels, but, and never mention the fact that we have a marketing customer success sales platform. Now we have an ops, op, ops hub. And so how do you get that balance, right? Because we have all of these individual products that are suitable for different people, but overall what we are is a CRM platform. And that, that balance is not easy to get right. Uh, there's just no easy answer for that. And we we are constantly trying to, to get that balance correct. And so I think repetition of message really matters. It's easier when you're a smaller single point solution. Like when you're a single point solution, I think if you solve a problem really well and you, you have people who are builders and can get audience, then that starts to propagate itself. When you're a multi-product company, you have to get really good at knowing the balance of how to tell the core story that you want someone to, to take away. And then you just have to by not like obsess over focusing the core problems that someone associate with that thing. And so then you end up showing up in all of these different review sites. You end up showing up in all of these ways that people refer, like you referred your friend to oh, HubSpot as a CRM, like that is because HubSpot solves the problem some would expect to to get with a with a CRM, hopefully mm. in, a, in a kind of better way. Right, right. There's also something you mentioned earlier about education that kind of piqued my interest. I wanted to dive down that a little bit. But do you think that education is still a good place or a promising place to start? Or, or maybe since everyone is trying to educate and it's sort of not a new and novel thing anymore, do you start with a different approach or somewhere else? I don't know. I think it's, you know, it's hard to answer where, because companies should do different things in different stages in different markets. And so education is the way that most companies grow an audience for their product or service. It's inherently competitive. I love a quote. We were talking to TechCrunch about the hustle deal, me and Sam, who's the founder of the hustle. And you know, one of the lines he used, I keep using it because I think it's so good, which is there's always room to be better or different. 
And I think you kind of have to live and die by that today because if I'm if mm. I was a marketer starting my career, my journey is going to be somewhat harder than my their journey is going to be somewhat harder than my journey because when I started marketing, you could be really opportunistic. There was still plenty of opportunity on search, plenty of opportunity and like if you think about it, I I started marketing when search was still kind of growing in popularity. I started marketing when Facebook was like launching and growing in popularity. So you had so much opportunity on all of these platforms. Since then, everything has kind of stayed the same in terms of platforms. But what's happened is marketers have got way better. Like the people I work with, the people I talk to, if I go back five, six years, they're just like people in their early 20s are way better than the people I used to talk to five or six years ago because they grew up in digital. And so I think there's room to to start anywhere where there's where your audience is and what is best for your company. And I think there's always room for you to be better or different. But the bar to be better or different is just way higher. It's way higher than it was five years ago. It's way, way higher than it was 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of the bar being higher, as HubSpot has grown and scaled and you guys have reached some immense milestones like we talked about before with, with ARR numbers and even just, you know, traffic and newsletter subscribers and podcast numbers, the bar gets higher. How do you decide what to invest in um, with the sort of size and scale that you have? I mean, HubSpot does have resources. You do have budget. You do have big dreams and vision and you're really, you're willing to kind of put in the work to make those happen. But there's probably a million and one things that you can go and do because we have all these resources. So do you have any sort of like thoughts or experiences around how you make decisions, how you choose between A, B and C and, or do you just do them all and sort of, you know, chip away at them concurrently? We sometimes do them all and that's a mistake. (laughs) So (laughs) you you know, what's funny, like regardless of the size we've been and since I've first started in HubSpot resources has always been an issue. And so I don't think that goes away. You know, I think that because you always want to do more and so you never get to the point where you're like, oh, well, I just have enough resources and the stuff that you want to do kind of stays flat. You actually, the stuff you want to do grows in tandem with the resources you get and actually always becomes, outgrows mm. your resources. So that, that problem never goes away. Your wants always outgrow your resources. We still look at the, we try to distill things down into three to five things. And so even we went through our marketing strategy for three years and like it's th- it's three things. And so we know the three things that we need to become world class at. I talked, I use this quote all the time from Wade Foster and it's overused, but I think it's a really great quote for anyone in life where, you know, we talked, I talked to him about how did, how did Zapier become the company they became bootstrapped? How did they become so good without, with so little investment? And he, he said, well, we, we got really comfortable with knowing the things that we weren't going to be great at, but knowing the, knowing the couple of things that we had to be world-class at, we still kind of, we have a similar philosophy where we're like, okay, well, they're, they're the three to five things that we need to invest in this year. Because when you look at where the business go, needs to go over 12 months, if we don't succeed in those things, we just know we won't hit our goals. Now, within that, there is a lot of models, a lot of different frameworks of how we kind of figure out the right things to do within that, whether it baked into... Does that drive a product growth? Does that drive leads, MQLs, active users, all of these different things? But it's really stepping back and thinking higher level, like what are the three to five things that we truly have to succeed at for us to be successful in the next 12 months? Mm. Do we stick to that and or do like do we stick to that and not take on any more things? No, like we still get into the problem of our eyes are bigger than our, our bellies and we take on more work than we have resources to be able to do and so that's an that's a consistent struggle that we try to get we try to get better at all the time yeah i mean i think you summarized it perfectly that sort of the, the vision the goals always grow with your resources and so yeah you're probably always going to feel like you don't have enough but you did mention there are three to five things for i was about that are like these are the focuses these are the, the big things these are the things you want to be world class at which i think is a really good way to think about it would you mind expanding a little bit on what those three to five things are yeah, it's kind of what I mentioned earlier. For us, it's really simple. We want to be able to tell remarkable stories across our brand and product. We want to be able to get mass amounts of distribution, which we've always, like we are hmm. just one of those companies that have always had a B2B to C mindset in terms of how we build audience. And we want to continue to be, we want to continue to be world-class at ed- education. There are the three things. Within there, there's some really exciting things. Like it's, it's pretty uh, fascinating for me because prior to HubSpot, I'd only ever been at a company for, I think, two years. And the 
what I've been fascinated by is the problems become more interesting the bigger the company got. And I thought it would be the opposite. I thought I would like, oh, I'm, I'm a hmm. 10 to 50 million person, a 50 million to 100 million person. And I've realized I'm just a problem person. Actually, just the what is the problem isn't an interesting problem. And so deep within those, the problems, are, like that's always kind of somewhat been our guiding lights and guiding principles. In there, the problems are so much bigger than they were before. And so like building a media offering, like the brand strategy, we have a new head of brand, they're amazing. Like what they're doing is more transformational than we've ever done. On the education mm-hmm. side, we're doing something very transformational that I can't talk about. And so within those buckets, the things become bigger, but those buckets haven't changed a lot. And I think it's because they're the right things for most companies to focus on. Yeah, yeah. What's something that might surprise people about the way you or HubSpot approaches marketing? You know, you're a very public figure, very very public company. You do share a lot of what you're doing. And so there might be all these, all sorts of ideas about how HubSpot works or how you guys think about it, numbers, metrics. But is there anything, anything that comes to mind that might surprise people just about uh, team, organization, uh, the way you guys work or some of the numbers you guys have? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. What, what would surprise, surprise people? Look, I think the way anything works internally is not the way that you talk about it on a podcast or a blog or write about it because who wants to hear the real version because the real version just has much more complexity and nuances in it. Mm. And so I think we try to give people the best version of what we have learned and kind of strip away the hard things that we've had to do to learn those things. And sometimes maybe the, the interesting part isn't the hard things to, to, to get to that point, but I'm not sure what will like, we're, we're, yeah, I'm not sure what would surprise people. I would have kind of gone blank. That's right. Going back to your roots a little bit, what does it take to scale marketing internationally? You know, expanding outside of the U S especially and outside of just sort of the maybe even just, you know, the native English speaking countries, like, you know, you have sort of the UK, Australia, Canada, for example. Um, I'm interested because I feel like you have this interesting perspective of having, you know, being in, in Dublin and Ireland and having Marketo and then HubSpot, like start their headquarters there. There are several other companies, like it seems like this Dublin and so the UK is sort of like this, this beachhead where a lot of companies start to begin scaling internationally. And also you started, I think, in international expansion within HubSpot. So I know that's not exactly what you do today, but given your experience and sort of what you've seen so far, what does it usually take to you to start thinking about scaling internationally? Yeah, here's what all companies do. They go and build smaller versions of their team in all these different places. And so you have like a team of 10 search people in the global office and you have a team of one person for like EMEA and one person for APAC and one person for wherever else they're trying to build or LATAM. And uh, that tends to be what international companies do. Like here's my global team and here's a tiny little version of it in these different places. What you need to get really good at is realizing what should be centralized and what should be regionalized. And so actually I think in the world we live in today because of the way we have, but that kind of model worked when you had to be in office to get your work done and you weren't that connected to the global team because remote work was really hard. Today, that's not true, right? We, like I, I'm managing all of these people from Dublin. We have like all, we have, we have this happening all across HubSpot where we have leaders in all different countries and locations, managing people who are on all different locations and countries. And so today you can actually have a lot more centralized and global best in class teams. And so I would look at, you know, do we just need to have one search team and they're best in class and they can service all languages? Do we need to have one paid team that is best in class, can service all languages? I think it's better to build best in class teams because number one, you have all of that knowledge in one team. Two, you have people who have career opportunities because they're in bigger teams. Now, if I'm a paid marketer, I'm not a paid marketer of one or two in these sub offices, but I'm a paid marketer of one or two in this central team. You do not, that does not mean you have to have all of the central team based on your global office. You can have them distributed all up through the regional offices as well, but they're part of like a central team and that's where they learn. So you want to have a you want to have a grasp of where can I centralize and where should I regionalize? So where should I regionalize is where my regional expertise trumps my domain expertise. So my domain expertise, like I just know search and I can do search for anywhere. I could do paid. I know paid. I can do paid for anywhere. Well, regional expertise does really matter when I'm telling brand and those kind of stories. I really need to understand my customers. I need to understand how to tell stories that will resonate with them. It really matters when I'm doing events. It really matters when I'm doing PR. It really matters when I'm doing some of those things. 
And that's what I would be more thoughtful on is like, don't just follow the playbook of like, here's a, my team and here's a tiny version of my team. Like here's best in class teams that can service all languages. And here's where like that regional expertise really matters. And then you have to come back to creator builders and operators, create great operator models between central teams and regional teams. And that's the hard part, right? How do all these people actually work together to make countries successful? Hmm. Yeah. Um, starting to wrap up here a little bit, but I'd love to take a peek at your kind of personal swipe file, as it were, and just do some you know marketing examples, campaigns, companies, brands, even creators uh, might be interesting to talk about uh, that you think are worthy, or just sort of like cream of the crop, uh, you think are, are amazing examples. Any that come to mind as some of your favorites or just uh, notable examples that you've seen recently? Yeah, I've, yeah. let me give you a couple that are all somewhat search-related because I, yeah. was, I was working on this recently, so it's top of mind. I did, I, so, let, so let me go through a couple. One that I've always used that I love because it was one of the first examples of a company really, uh, like you've probably heard uh, this product channel fit from Brian before if you've followed any of the growth stuff. I think it's a really good thing for brands to think about is like, how do I build products to fit with channels? Coming back to like everything is more competitive. Well, well one way I can actually win is if I actually put growth and acquisition in my product roadmap and build products to fit with channels. Rap Genius were one of the best examples before growth was a thing. Like they they launched at a time when there was just so many different lyric sites. Like how do you how do you compete on lyrics? Like it's the same content, right? If you just think about that, they weren't the first lyric site. So how do you ever displace several competitors who have the same content as me? What I love what they did was they they built product to fit with Google. And so what they did that no other company did was they allowed you to they allowed you to annotate and say what lyrics meant because I listen to hip hop, it's one of my favorite it's my favorite thing, music form. And all lyrics have like sub meanings. And so that you could have users now annotate lyrics and say, oh well he actually means this or she means this by this lyric. And then you can compile those together and that's how they won through user generated content. And so they're a mm -hmm. fascinating story, nowgenius.com of how they create a product channel fit for Google. I think they ran into some problems with Google at a later date. But I think that's a cool one. I think one yeah. of the other ones I love is, yeah, you want to get in there, right? No, I was just going to say that that's an amazing example. I never really, I, I thought you were going to go down the route of like, well, you know, they just decided to compete on search and they just did search better than any other company. But the fact that they looped in some user generated content and allowed it to annotate and that was sort of like the, the competitive advantage is, is really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're really cool. Uh, a couple of others that fit the same sort of, bucket which is every b2b company is trying to do templates right like it is the thing to do what why is it a good thing to do well it is actually a good thing to do because templates is one of the few tactics where i can increase the top and improve my in-product engagement and so when you think about it i create templates for use cases of my product like it is an unbelievable way to market your product if you have product channel fit with this tactic not all not, most products don't because mm -hmm. i'm actually surfacing the exact use case that you want to do in Google. So when you find me, you get imported to the exact thing you want to do. So Canva is the company that started all this, Airtable, Coda, Coda all these companies are, are actually doing a good job of, of replicating that. Miro is actually one of my favorite, but Canva built this extensive product library. You've probably had people talk to you about it on the show before, and they increased that the top. And they, the cool thing was it actually increased the user activation by um, 40%. Another example of this is side doors. So what do you do when no one is searching for your product? That happens a lot in B2B, right? Because actually B2B doesn't have, products don't have a lot of search traffic. Two side door examples that I really like is Pandadoc. So Pandadoc are document management software, 3,500 monthly searches. And they did the same similar thing in Google where they said, well, no one's actually searching for the thing we do. Why don't we just create all of these documents like proposal forms, agency forms, all of these different forms and get people into the product to adopt that template. Coda. It are, are doing something really similar, but kind of interesting where you actually can read the first page of a Coda template and then you have to sign up to the product to actually get that template. Yeah. I'm on the fence whether they've been too aggressive because for me, they've gated their entire blog. Hmm. Wise, who used to be TransferWise, going public soon, London-based company, who have a phenomenal growth team, especially in search, really smart people. They, no one's searching for, what they were doing was just like, how do I transfer my money into these different currencies? But when people were searching for Bic and Swift codes, people were searching for exchange rates. And so they built entire sites just to siphle off that traffic and then convert it into their core product. And it actually mm. grew their their uh, revenue by by a lot. So there are some of the search that come to, to mind. I have some ad creatives, but I'm trying to 
I did a post recently where I compared some of my favorite ad creators. So if you want to comment on that, and then I can try to figure out if I can remember them, but maybe that's yeah, enough. Yeah. <laughs> no, th th those are amazing examples. It's funny you mentioned Coda, actually, because I recently discovered that myself naturally, sort of organically. I was searching for you know the classic product market fit survey kind of template, doing it for one of my consulting clients, Savvy Kell with Derek Grammer. And I sort of, I have it, I have some of the groundwork, but I was kind of just wondering, like, I just wanted to like read through the posts again and like just see sort of how they thought about it, how they analyzed it, especially just in case I was missing anything. And so I was going through sort of the top research results and I saw that Coda is one of them. And then I started reading through and then I saw that the first page was available and they even had all this like dummy data and I could see that there was like five parts to it and that I had to, you know, to go to, go to the next part and read the next section, I had to sign up. And so at first I kind of like, I was like, oh, okay, whatever, I'll exit out. And then I was like, well, actually that's kind of interesting. <laughs> As a marketer, yeah. like I'm just kind of, you know, personally curious. And so I went back to it, ended up signing up for Coda for the first time, went through the other sections, ended up not, you know, using the Coda template for it. We were using uh, Reform, which is another friend's product. So I didn't really need it for that use case or even the anal uh, analyzing kind of use case either. But I thought that was fascinating just that, you know, you take something like a, a blog and you sort of productize it in the way of instead of this just this just being like a static page it's just more interactive dynamic experience yep 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 I, yeah it's going to be interesting it's sim similar to like if you read the guardian and uh you can read a certain amount of free articles i think it's on mobile because on desktop you can read many free articles you can read a certain amount free hmm. and they ask you to sign up which is actually fascinating that they've done it through device evernote does something very similar with their pqls the other thing I would say, one other thing I'll leave people with for, it's not really a swipe file, but maybe it's just one of the learnings I've had over the past three months is working really closely with the hustle team and looking at how successful they are as creators and trying to figure out like, why are they so good at what they do? I've, really, I've always thought like, oh, well, if I ever, you know, it's just being a better, just being a really great writer, like, like they can just write really well. They do that. It's not that. It's what they're better at than most people is finding something interesting their audience cares about. It's the actual mm. story. Like the, the, I think the writing is secondary to actually finding the story. I think you could be a great writer, but you just may not be able to have the ability to find something that truly hits a nerve with some people. And what they're really good at is more often than not finding something that not many other people have covered and really hits a nerve with their audience. And that actually got me thinking to think more deeply about like, oh, if I want to share something that people care about, it can't just be take the same thing that everyone else is covering and post it online. You have to kind of spend a little bit more time and effort to find something of, of interest. And again, that comes back to one of the things we were talking about, which everything is harder. And there's really incredible people doing this. And so unfortunately there's no shortcuts. Yeah, I 100% agree. I'm glad you brought that up because I sort of started like this Twitter growth challenge to just you know have some accountability and get people inspired to write more, produce more. And sort of what I found is kind of, you know, I don't know, conundrum I found myself in is that a lot of people are talking about the same things and there's only so many ways you can skin the cat as it were. <laughs> I hate that saying, but like if it's the same content and, you know, like, like the writing quality really doesn't bring up sort of the, it uh, doesn't incrementally improve your ability to sort of go viral or build your following all that much. It really does come down to the content itself. And uh, especially if you're doing a lot of curating and you're sort of like, you know, curating tips and practices, other stories, you have to go and find those new and novel stories. You have to go and, you know, pave the way for those new tactics and strategies. And, and that's a lot, you know, that's the harder work to do, but that's the work you have to do in order to stand out. And that's just the way that things are today. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. It just takes time and effort. That's a difficult one. Well, Kieran, it's been a blast. Final question for you. When I say everything is marketing, title of the show, what does that mean to you? What comes to mind? Hmm. Everything is marketing, title of the show. It's storytelling. I think it, like, I, we, we, are, we are inherently, if you think, if you look back at the evolution of humans, the reason humans became the dominant species on earth is because we have the ability to tell stories. Marketing is just a form of storytelling. I love it. Okay, it's been a blast. I'm a huge fan of what you guys are doing. Congrats on the hustle. Congrats on the podcast network. I'm going to be following closely for a couple of these bits that we weren't able to talk about today, but hopefully we can maybe in a future episode or at least I'll personally be able to follow along. And I just want to say congrats, love what you're doing and keep it up. Cool. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for having me on. 
Thanks once again to Kieran for coming on the show. Make sure to check out HubSpot, The Hustle, and HubSpot's podcast network to see everything that they're doing these days. And if you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank him. He's really active on Twitter, so I know that means a lot. Just to know that people are listening and that it's valuable content for you. And to wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways. First of all, being a VP at a publicly traded company is no easy task. Kieran works his butt off and grinds it out to do great work. So kudos to him and others in a similar position who put in the long days for their team and the company. Secondly, I loved his thoughts on putting together teams for international expansion. The old model of setting up physical offices in other regions can be replaced by adding regionally competent team members to your team and not siloing the teams as much. And this is mainly due to the remote work. And lastly, I love how Kieran and HubSpot are thinking through the build versus buy versus partner framework. It's clear that they really think through every opportunity from the best way to execute on each one and do it really well at scale. I mean, we're seeing their build, buy, and partner strategies play out as we speak, which is really exciting and really fun. If you've got a question or takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com slash membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.